0: Several years ago, customers of a bank in Warwick, Rhode Island were duped. An official-looking sign in the front of the bank instructed depositors to put their money in a newly installed drop box. The sign indicated that the regular night deposit was out of order. So during the long Labor Day weekend, customers would drop their money in what proved to be a bogus night deposit for early Monday morning Before the bank opened, in the wee hours of the morning, the crooks removed the box and they made off with all the loot. Warwick Police Captain Joe Tavares, he made the comment, this was obviously a well-thought-out crime. Everybody fell for it. They were duped. Likewise, the Thessalonians were duped by well-thought-out schemers. They were duped by doctrinal deception. Spiritual crooks had stolen their hope. A letter had been written to the Thessalonians in Paul's name. And it stated that Jesus had already returned for his church. Thus, the believers in Thessalonica had been left behind. The Thessalonians were panicked. They were perplexed. And so Paul writes this second letter to the Thessalonians to refute this blatant deception and to straighten out their confusion, he wants to restore hope to the church in Thessalonica. Paul begins in verse 1. Paul, and there's buddies, Salvanus or Silas and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting. You know, I've heard it said, A real friend warms you with his presence, trusts you with his secrets, and remembers you in his prayers. If that's the case, there's never been a better friend than Paul. In all of Paul's letters, he prays for his readers. Now remember in 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 12, Paul prayed specifically for these Thessalonians. He prayed, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another. And now here he thanks God for answering his previous prayer. He says, Because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you now abounds toward each other. The Thessalonians were abounding in love. Paul's prayer had been answered. Verse 4, So that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God, "...for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure." Now remember, the Thessalonians were wartime babies. They were born in the midst of persecution. Acts chapter 17 recounts how the leaders in Thessalonica were arrested, and how Paul was run out of town. And yet through it all, the Thessalonians had been faithful to the Lord. These people had been overcomers. So was Brother Samsul. In the summer of 1997, Samsul, along with Hussein Lasker, two Gospel for Asia missionaries, were sharing the gospel in an Indian village of Nagaland. The two men were murdered by a group of Muslim fanatics. I'm sorry, they weren't murdered, they were attacked by Muslim fanatics. Hussein was murdered, but Samsul, he survived. He was stabbed, though, six times and he was left for dead. And yet, just a month after the attack, there in the hospital, recovering from his wounds, Samsul made a commitment to return to the village that had brutalized he and his partner. Brother Samsul explained to a reporter As a Muslim convert, it is my heart's desire that my own people be one to Christ. After returning to his village, Samsul led 11 people to Christ and baptized them into the church. He said of the persecution, Just as in history, the blood of the martyrs has become the seeds of the church. If believers in other parts of the world tonight, if the Thessalonians, in the persecution they endured, if they can endure beatings and imprisonments and torture and the like, and still remain, as Paul puts it, steady and determined in their faith, then trust me, you and I can endure a little social alienation And a little mocking at the office. Hey, we too can stand strong in the persecution that we face. Even if made the butt of a joke, we can stand strong. We need to develop this same kind of strong, overcoming faith. Now Paul has commended the Thessalonians for their love. They're abounding in love. And now he's commended them for their faith. They've been steady and determined in their faith. But what about their hope? Recall, back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and in verse 3, Paul had spoken of their work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope. Here, their faith and their love are still intact. But somehow, between the writing of these two letters, something had happened to their hope. Their hope had been stolen. Now, as an Atlanta resident, I'll never forget the Olympic snub that the city endured at the close of the 1996 Olympic Games. You probably remember it too. Traditionally, the IOC president, he congratulates the host city for putting on the best games ever. Those are the words that he uses. But that year, all he could muster for Atlanta was a most exceptional games. You remember the uproar that took place. Myself along with millions of other Atlantans thought, we've been inconvenienced for construction and for traffic for weeks and weeks and months and months, and all we get is a most exceptional and not a best ever? You see, it's not what was said, but it was what wasn't said that bothered us. And this is the case here in 2 Thessalonians. Paul commends them for their love and for their faith But what about their hope? What happened to their hope? Why is their hope missing? And we're going to find out in chapter 2. But first, Paul continues to comfort this persecuted church, and he does it in a surprising way. He wows them with a description of Jesus' return to planet Earth, the second coming of Christ. This is interesting. Paul encourages and comforts a persecuted church with a picture of God's future judgment. Notice in verse 5, Paul refers to the faithful church in Thessalonica as, and I quote, "...manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God." Now that is a heavy, heavy statement to make. Paul informs these believers, just a few months old in the Lord, that when Jesus returns at the battle of Armageddon to crush Satan and to annihilate the armies of mankind, God will point to the Thessalonians, to these young believers. He'll point to them and the believers of all ages and He'll say to a hostile world, there, I did this because of what you did to my kids. They and you and us and everyone else who's been persecuted for Christ's sake is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God. You see, nothing angers God more than how the world mistreats his kids. And God is determined that all persecution will be punished. And Paul ensures the Thessalonians, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also suffer, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. This evil world thinks that it can oppose Christ and trash His church, and there be no penalties. Paul says, not so. You know, Jesus commands us to turn the other cheek. It's not His place or His time to execute retribution. Not now. But at the end of the age, Jesus will return. Not to turn the other cheek, but to bust the world in its chops. He'll repay the world's tribulation with great tribulation. In the end, God will trouble the wicked and we're told... Give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Now imagine your son, he goes out for the baseball team. He's by far one of the better players. But because of little league politics, and you know about little league politics, another kid starts in your son's place. An injustice has been done. And as a parent, you're concerned about this. You feel it's your obligation to go and talk to the coach. And so you plan to do so after the next game. You're going to have that conversation. The problem, though, is that in the next game, your son gets to play. And that's a problem because he's terrible that night. In the game, your son, he strikes out at every at-bat. He makes a couple of errors out in the field. Now, you said you were going to talk to the coach about your son not starting. And it still might be the right thing to do. Your son still might have suffered an injustice. But the problem is is that your son's poor performance has just weakened your argument. And it's just made your conversation much harder to have. I mean, now, what are you going to say? And this is why the faith of the Thessalonians is so strategic. Their endurance in the face of persecution is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God. That's why they need to live a life worthy of the kingdom. For if they grow bitter, and if they repay evil with evil, and if they become vindictive and hateful, and no better than the people that God intends to judge, then their persecutors will one day be able to rise up and say, you know, God, why are you judging us? When your own people are no different. We've weakened God's argument." If we stoop to their level, we make the argument harder on God. At Jesus' second coming, justice will be restored. Sin will be repaid. The righteous will be relieved. When the smoke clears on the battlefield and Jesus is the only one left standing, a sigh of relief will have sinned from the saints. Wickedness has finally been punished. Righteousness will have been rewarded. But if God is going to judge the wicked in the Lord's day, then we need to avoid those same sins in our day. Don't you agree? Well, verse 8 tells us that Jesus will come in flaming fire. In flaming fire. Taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice How men are judged in the last days. Notice what it all boils down to. The gospel. What did they do with Jesus? Did they obey Him? Or did they reject the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's going to be the issue. People who reject the gospel, Paul tells us, shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. And from the glory of His power. I mean, here is the essence of hell. It's eternal separation from God. You can't live a defiant life, defiant of Jesus. You cannot run from Jesus and turn your back on Him while you live and then expect to live with Him for all eternity. I mean, since you didn't like Him on earth and since you resisted His influence, eternity is designed to honor your choice forever. Thus, it's everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. That's what everlasting destruction is. It's it's forever apart from God. If you choose that, then that's what you'll receive. For when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because of our testimony among you was believed. I mean, Jesus is returning to be glorified here. He's going to be glorified where He was crucified. He's going to rule where He was rejected. You know, even today, Jesus is being mocked and He's being ridiculed. And His followers are being treated with an equal disdain. But on that judgment day, Jesus will be admired by all the world. That day, you and I, we will be unveiled as His greatest work, as His masterpiece. Irony of all ironies, the world will glorify Jesus in us how the tables will have turned. And thus Paul intercedes for the Thessalonians, verse 11. He says, Therefore we also pray always for you, that our God would count you worthy of this calling, and fulfill all the good pleasure of His goodness, and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you, and you in Him, according to the grace of our God in the Lord Jesus Christ. What a high calling we've been given. That Christ will one day be glorified in us for all the world to see. Can you imagine? That's your destiny. Let's begin to live out that calling today. And do those things that please Him and that honor Him. Well, chapter 2 begins. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. Now this was Paul's subject back in First Thessalonians chapter four. You remember he described for us the rapture of the church, our gathering together to him. One day Jesus is going to come in the clouds and he's going to snatch away his bride. It'll happen in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, he tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15. In that twinkling of an eye, these earthly bodies will be transformed into eternal bodies. Bods fit for God. Can you imagine? And we'll be gathered to each other and to Jesus in the clouds. We'll live forever with the Lord. What a glorious hope. You see, Paul didn't leave the Thessalonians up in the air about the rapture. I mean, he carefully explained to them what's up with this important event. And yet, confusion had still occurred. False information had been disseminated. And in verse 2, Paul confronts it. He says, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if it was from us, as though the day of Christ had come. A letter had come, supposedly written by Paul, saying that they had missed the rapture. Now here Paul speaks of the day of Christ. It's actually a synonym for the day of the Lord. We've talked about that on several occasions here lately. In fact, the New American Standard and the newer translations actually have the day of the Lord. It's treated the same as the day of Christ. Don't get confused by that. Now what had happened to the Thessalonians' hope? Well, from Paul's statement here in verse 2, we can infer that someone told them that they had missed the rapture, that the day of the Lord, or that God's future judgment had already begun. Put yourself in the Thessalonians' shoes with the fierce persecution that they were experiencing. I mean, their leaders were being hauled off to the theater and being beaten in the streets and so forth. They thought, they could have concluded that they were experiencing great tribulation. Remember, today is the day of man. And for the most part, mankind is having his say. He's getting his way. But God is about to spoil our party. God is going to intervene in the affairs of man. And He's going to have His say. Daniel chapter 9 speaks of a final seven-year period that will end mankind's domination over planet Earth. That God will rain down His wrath on this wicked world. In process, he'll purify Israel and he'll usher in the kingdom of God. This is what we've been studying in Revelation. And that period yet future, starting at the rapture and culminating with the kingdom, is what the Bible calls the day of the Lord or what Paul here calls the day of Christ. What scared these Thessalonians was the possibility that they had missed out on the opening act. On the rapture. And they had suddenly been tossed into this period of great tribulation. Again, they had even received a letter supposedly signed by Paul that it had confirmed their fears. Paul assures them, though, that the letter was a forgery that they had been duped. Several years ago, a man from Clearwater, Florida, got a kick out of dialing 911. Repeatedly, 14 times, in fact, he called... Emergency services called in a false emergency. Well, today the man's in the slammer. But when he was arrested, he told the police that he enjoyed watching fire trucks and flashing lights. He just got his jollies from creating a panic. Well, there must have been some similar fella in the church there in Thessalonica. He enjoyed setting off false alarms. The church was panicked. But they had no reason to be. Recall, there are two types of tribulations spoken of in Scripture. Jesus promised His church that in this world, you will have tribulation. There is a tribulation that the world brings upon the church. But the tribulation that comes in the day of the Lord is the wrath of God being poured out on the evil world. This is the great tribulation. This is God's tribulation on the planet. And from that tribulation we've been promised an escape as Paul said in first Thessalonians 5 verse 9 God did not appoint us to wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ we're not looking for these judgments we're looking for Jesus and so verse 3 Paul says let no one deceive you by any means for that day and again what day does he mean Not the rapture per se, but the day of the Lord. This period of time in which God will pour out His fierce judgments. This final time period, he says, will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed. Now follow Paul's logic. He he clears up this confusion by basically saying this. If events unfold, A then B, then C, and you haven't seen A and B, then you know that C hasn't happened. You you follow that logic? That in essence is what he's saying here. He's saying thus before God pours out his final judgment, there will be first a falling away, A, and then you'll see the man of sin, B, and then these judgments will come, C. C. And since the Thessalonians hadn't seen A and B, they couldn't be in C. Follow the logic? He said, you didn't miss the rapture. You're not in the midst of great tribulation. It's as if I were giving directions from Athens to Calvary Chapel here. I'd say, head down Highway 78. But you're not there until you pass through Loganville. You're not there until you pass through Snellville. Pass through Loganville, Snellville. Then you'll be at Calvary Chapel. In essence, this is what Paul is saying. If you'd missed the rapture, and you were in the midst of great tribulation, then you would have already seen what had come first, the falling away and the man of sin. Now Harry he mentions these two events. First, the falling away. The Greek word means departure. Apostasy, or departure, a falling away. It's interpreted by most Bible scholars as a departure from the faith. An apostasy will plague Christianity. False doctrine will lead people astray. Believers will no longer rightly divide the Word of God. They'll move away from Scripture. And they'll create their own eclectic, private religion. It'll be a religion of tolerance that accommodates all kinds of persuasions. Oh, surely the church today is barreling towards this apostasy. This is the religion that will catapult the Antichrist to power. We'll talk about this In Revelation chapter 17, it's envisioned as a spiritual harlot. And yet there's another possible interpretation here of the falling away. In fact, famed Greek scholar Kenneth Wiest, he points out that the Greek word could also be a reference to the departure of the church, which is what? The rapture. In other words, Paul is saying that the day of the Lord won't begin until the church has been snatched away. You're not in the great tribulation because the falling away comes first. The departure comes first, the rapture. And then, second, he says, also, you'll see the man of sin. The man of sin is revealed. And here he gives him a name, he calls him the son of perdition. Only two men in the Bible are called the son of perdition the Antichrist, and you know who the other one is? Judas Iscariot. Well, the final seven years of great tribulation in Daniel 9 begins when a world leader, known in Scripture as the man of sin, or the beast, or the Antichrist, when he makes a covenant or signs a treaty with the nation Israel. Piecing various passages together, the Antichrist will rise as a leader of a ten-nation confederacy, probably European nations. He'll expand his power to rule the whole world. And then at the, end, at the midpoint of this great tribulation, he'll violate his agreement with Israel and he'll desecrate their temple. We're told here in verse 4 that he opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Apparently this Antichrist will turn on the apostate Christianity that catapulted him to power and he will set himself up as God. He'll claim to be God. And Revelation 13 explains how the man of sin will blackmail the world into worshipping him. To buy or to sell a person will be required to take his number It's a mark in the right hand or in the forehead, the number 666. Apparently, this future fuhrer will take over the hardware of economic exchange, cashless technology, digital currency, electronic transactions. These are not evil in and of themselves, but they probably will be the tools that the Antichrist will use to extort the world's worship. He'll use some kind of configuration of this 666. You know, it's interesting how many people are afraid of that number. Have you noticed this? I mean, like if you got your new tags for your car and you, you got 666 DBZ, you wouldn't take it, would you? <laughs> You'd say, I want another tag. In 1979, Ronald and Nancy Reagan they moved to the Bel Air area of Los Angeles, and their new address was 666 St. Cloud Road. They had it changed to 668. I guess when you're Ronald Reagan, you can do that. There were new moms, by the way, that went to great extremes to keep from birthing their babies on June the 6th, 2006. I guess they just kind of held on to the 7th. In fact, did you know there is a term for the fear of the number 666? Hexacosia, hexacon. Hexophobia. It's the Greek 666 phobia. Here's the good news. Christians don't have to be afraid of 666. For we are not looking at, for the Antichrist. We're looking for Jesus Christ. Paul tells us that he comes first. And then verse 5. Do you remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things. I mean, I'm covering old ground here. He's straightening out this deception that's entered in. And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Now Paul tells us that this mystery of lawlessness is already at work. There is a spirit of antichrist in the world today. There is a hostility toward Christ. I mean, Just just look at it. You can speak of God all day long and not offend a soul. But just mention the name of Jesus. And they'll want you to shut up. Trust me, they will. Satan has been jealous of Jesus from the very beginning. He doesn't just oppose Jesus. He wants to take his place. And this is why throughout history, Satan has deceived men into assuming that God is the bad guy and that he is the good guy. He is the one that ought to be worshipped. This is what Paul calls the mystery of lawlessness. And if you think the animosity toward Jesus is bad now, you just wait until he who restrains is taken away. Who is this restrainer that Paul mentions? Well, there's a debate over his identity. I'll tell you what I believe. I believe he who now restrains is the Holy Spirit in His church. Now, not the Holy Spirit per se, because the Holy Spirit will continue to be around after the rapture. I mean, people will get saved. The Holy Spirit will draw people to Christ during the Great Tribulation. He'll still be active. But right now, it is the Holy Spirit's presence and power in the church that's producing the pushback, that's keeping evil at bay in this world. But listen, once the church is raptured, once we're out of the way, it's Katie bar the door. Satanism and paganism and war and sexual perversion and greed and domestic abuse and random violence will all run rampant. You think it's bad now. You ain't seen nothing yet. Today, the Holy Spirit's presence in the church of Jesus Christ is all that's really holding back the rising tide of evil in our world on the job, in the neighborhood, at the school, among the family, whether you realize it or not, it's your belief in God. It's your love for Jesus. It's your stand for the truth. You are the one that is providing some resistance to the devil. You're the one that's keeping evil in check. Don't underestimate the importance of your role in this world today. For when the church is out of the way, when the church is gone, trust me, the devil We'll have a heyday. Verse 8 tells us, And then the lawless one will be revealed. I mean, once the restrainer's gone, the Antichrist has no restraints. He takes control. He moves his real agenda to center stage. He claims to be God. But he's not in power for long. For he is the one, and I quote, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of His mouth And will destroy with the brightness of His coming. Now you want to know real power? You want to see a show of real power? You wait till Jesus splits the eastern skies. You wait till He returns to this earth. You heard of breath that will kill? That's Jesus, baby. He'll blow on the devil's old blowhard, the Antichrist. And the evil guy will be vaporized instantly. The armies of the world will rally together to fight against Christ. But there will be no fight. For Jesus will destroy the Antichrist with the breath of his mouth and with the flash of his glory. God breathed into Adam the breath of life. Here Jesus breathes the breath of death. A single glimmer of his glory disintegrates the beast. In 1588, after the British Navy defeated the Spanish Armada, Admiral Drake asked Queen Elizabeth if she would honor his troops with her presence. He wanted the queen to pass out medals to his deserving admirals. She agreed, but before she arrived, Drake commanded his men. He said, on account of the dazzling loveliness of her majesty, all men, upon receiving their prizes, should shield their eyes with their right hand. And so began the military salute. Hey, here Paul is telling us that the only protection from the searing heat of the glory of Christ is a salute. is an acknowledgement of His authority and His power. The only way you can protect yourself from this coming Christ is to bow to Him. is to salute Him. It's to yield and it's to pledge your allegiance to the Master. This is the only escape. Either yield to His glory now you'll be destroyed by later. Paul adds that the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. You need to know Satan's power is real. His wonders are legit. Moses, remember, turned his rod into a serpent. And then Pharaoh's magicians duplicated the miracle. Of course, Moses' serpent ate Pharaoh's serpents, but the miracle was real the antichrist will be a miracle man he'll perform miracles he'll perform wonders hey don't get lured into some some guy's web just because he he works miracles but pastor sandy i mean that guy i know his teachings kind of off and all and i know he kind of gets some weird doctrines but man you should go to the healing service people are getting healed people, really miracles are happening so what the antichrist will work miracles the devil works miracles Here he performs wonders, and they're called lying wonders. You know, they're lies. You know, how do you know a man's of God? It's the truth of what he says, not, not the things that he does. God uses miracles to draw men to the truth. Satan uses miracles to pass off his lies. Verse 10 highlights the purpose of his lies. And with all, unrighteousness, all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. I think Satan knows that he's going down. And I think he just wants to take as many folks with him as possible. It's sad, but once a person rejects the truth, they'll fall for anything. This means people alive in the great tribulation will be vulnerable to Satan's deceptions. Verse 11 And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. Notice not just a lie, but the lie. Perhaps this is the very first lie. The lie that ended our utopian paradise. Eve believed that she could be like God. And that was the original sin. Today, self-deification, this desire to be like God is the foundation for Eastern mysticism and for New Age philosophy. It's the belief that there's a God within you. The God force dwells within you. Use the force, Luke. I mean, that you can shape your own reality. That you can be your own God. And this self-deification is the epitome of sin. It's the spirit of Antichrist. Realize the prefix anti as in Antichrist, can mean either against or in place of. Thus the spirit of Antichrist, it either bucks and opposes the will of Christ or it puts itself in the place of Christ. And this kind of self-worship is becoming increasingly popular. It could well be the strong delusion, the lie that unites the world in the worship of the beast. And God sends this lie to consolidate mankind's rebellion in this coup d'etat once and for all, verse 12, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And why would anyone want to be their own God? Well, I'll tell you why. It's fun. Sin is pleasurable. Hey, if sin wasn't pleasurable, it wouldn't be tempting. And yet one day we're told here that God will condemn those who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in unrighteousness. Verse 13, But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which He called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of God of our Lord Jesus Christ we were chosen and then we were called therefore brethren stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught whether by word or our epistle it's not enough just to hear once and believe we need to hold fast and continue in our faith now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation And good hope by grace comforts your hearts and establishes you in every good word and work. The Thessalonians are reminded not only of their love, not only of their faith, but also the good hope they've received by grace. He restores to them their hope. Chapter 3. Finally, brethren, pray for us. Paul had prayed earlier for the Thessalonians. Now he asked them to return the favor. And here's how they should pray. That the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified, just as it is with you. That's interesting what the Bible says about the Bible. Jeremiah says that the word of God is like a hammer. It is, isn't it? Hebrews tells us that it's like a sharp two-edged sword. The psalmist says that it's sweeter than the honeycomb. Here we're told that the Word of God has 4-2 speed in the 40-yard dash. Hey, it runs swiftly. It's fast. It tracks its prey. It can tree you. It can run you down. Hey, as Jonah discovered, you cannot outrun the will of God. Here we're told that the Word of the Lord... Paul prays that it may run swiftly and be glorified. And that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. Notice that. Men will let you down, but the Lord is faithful. He will guard you. He will establish. You know, for years, Forsyth County kind of had the reputation of being a bigoted, prejudiced kind of place. It was especially so when I was in high school. And one year, the Comets from South Quinnette were scheduled to play a football game up in Forsyth County. I'll never forget it. Our star running back, his name was Keith. He he was a black kid on our team. He was fast. He was great. He had swivel hips. He He had all the moves. He was a great guy. And when Coach Johnson caught word that Keith was kind of getting cold feet, and he was thinking about missing the Forsyth County game, he called Keith into his office. I I, I was told later what was said. Coach said, Keith, don't worry. If anybody tries to lay a hand on you, they got to go through me to get to you. And then Coach Johnson paused, and, and then he added, but Keith... If they get through me, buddy, you're on your own. (laughs) And this is what Paul assures us. Even if your friends forsake you, even if they let you down, the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. And unlike our coach, no one gets through Jesus. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you, Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. You know, there's no greater truth. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. But so often we wander from that truth, don't we? The love of God feels distant to us. This is why our prayer needs to be what Paul prays here. Lord, direct my heart back into your love. Keep bringing me back, Lord, for a taste of your love. For if we abide in God's love for us, then our love for God will always be full flame. Verse 6, But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly, and not according to the tradition which he received from us. Issues were arising in the church that called for discipline. And when a wayward believer refuses church discipline, the final remedy, the final step in the process is to withdraw fellowship from that brother, that believer. Remove the protection of the church family. Let the rebel taste the consequences of his or her sin. This is the final step. Paul says that this is often what you have to do. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. Paul was a pastor, and as a pastor, according to Scripture, he had the right to be compensated by the church. But Paul was willing to forego his own rights for the betterment of the body. And thus he was bivocational. Tent maker by day, pastor by night, burden to no one. He continues, For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. There's a guy in New York City who enjoys fine food, but he doesn't really like to work. And so 31 times he's entered a restaurant, he's eaten the top cuisine, And then he shrugged his shoulders upon receiving the check, and he's waited for the police to haul him off to jail. Kind of like that guy in the commercial who tries to pay with Monopoly money. You've seen that commercial. It's kind of funny. The police say that this guy actually looks forward to jail time. Why? He gets three square meals. He gets a nice, warm, dry place to sleep. Over the last five years, taxpayers have shelled out $250,000 to feed, clothe, and house this one lazy man. Kind of makes you mad, doesn't it? You may not be able to work. You may be able, but not be able to find a job. In those cases, the church should help you. But if you just don't want to work, there's no way that you should receive a handout from the government or from the church or from anybody else. If we gave you a handout, we would be interfering with the lesson that God in your hungry stomach is trying to teach you. Paul is adamant, no loaves for the loafers. If a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. You see, because of the Thessalonians' emphasis on the coming of Christ, there were believers in this church who did, decided to just sit out life. They were just going to hang out and wait for the rapture. They failed to get an education. They failed to prepare for life. They refused to get a job. They mooched off other believers. And Paul is basically saying, stop it. Just stop it. Christian benevolence should never breed another person's irresponsibility. Never. If a person won't work, then they certainly shouldn't eat or be given food to eat. Verse 11. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. I mean, without a job, people become idle, and they start sticking their nose in other people's business. We don't like that. You've heard it said, Idleness is the devil's workshop, and indeed it is. The Jewish rabbis, they had a a proverb, He who doesn't teach his son a trade teaches him to be a thief. The ancient Romans said, by doing nothing, men learn to do evil. I mean, good, honest work keeps a person out of trouble, and it also keeps their stomach from the rumble. Verse 12. Now those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. I suppose there are two pursuits that should occupy every Christian's life. Making a living and doing good. This is what you should be up to. You want to know God's will for your life tomorrow? Go out and make a living and do some good. There you have it. Verse 14. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Notice the balance here in Paul's discipline. I mean, if a brother persistently disobeys, then don't pretend it's all cool. Don't just be buddy-buddy with him. Don't hang out like there's nothing wrong. And yet, don't abandon him completely either. He's your brother in Christ. That's why you need to sit down with him. You need to tell him what concerns you. You need to make it an issue and then keep it an issue until he's willing to resolve the issue. He says, now... May the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. And then he adds, The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. You see, the Thessalonians, they had been duped once. They had received a letter supposedly from Paul that wasn't. He tells them how they can be sure that the letter is from him. He says, Check the signature. Paul would dictate his letters, but at the end of each one, he would take the quill personally in his hand, and he would sign with his own signature. You could always identify if the letter was from Paul. His signature was the stamp of his authenticity. Verse 18 closes the book of 2 Thessalonians. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.